Hello, and welcome to AK-47, 47 Selections from the Works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am continuing with the discussions of Alexandra Kolontai's 1923 essay, Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth. Uh, in my office here at the University of Pennsylvania, I have a graduate student in comparative literature, Angelina Eimansberger. And she is going to talk a little bit about Kolontai. She has just wonderfully passed her oral examinations. Uh, and on uh, her oral examination list was this essay. So I think it will be really interesting to sort of think about the way that Kolontai's ideas and, and philosophies are influencing people who are doing their PhD in the current day. Hi. So I'm Mandelina. And Kolontai was on my theory list, and I work with her because in feminism from the 1970s on, we always say the private is political, the personal is political. But I think while that is true and sort of working and running for office and those things, sort of what we think of as like Sheryl Sandberg's brand of feminism is important, but the private needs to be theorized also, and specifically domesticity needs to be theorized. And someone like Colin Tai has actually already done that. And she has done it in a way that doesn't make a difference between thinking about material condition and sexualities, which sometimes happens today, that we do some work as feminist theorists in the academy, and other things we do as like queer theorists in a really different place. And I think that lets a lot of things fall through the cracks. But Colin Tai thinks about sexuality as someone who wouldn't call herself a feminist, I think. Right. But who would, I think, today be considered a feminist. Definitely, yeah. So I'm thinking of someone like Alexandra, Alexandria Octavio Cortez, who obviously is a politician. So we would think she's one of those people who does very much the thing of being in the public sphere. But most of her problems come from people not letting her just be a public figure, but saying she's too young, she's too inexperienced, she's working class, she doesn't know yet, she's only 29. <laughs> and all of those things, I think, don't come from having more, poli I mean, sure, more politicians that are women does normalize having a woman who's young and who's working class and who's Latina. But I think understanding why people are so mean to her comes from theorizing, like Colin Tai does, the private and understanding why men are so confused that she's a strong politician. And so one of the things about this essay that is really interesting is that she not only does a diagnosis of the present day, she, right. in her time in 1923, the present day being bourgeois capitalism, unfortunately still our present day, <laughs> um, but she starts to extrapolate about how things might be in the future. And that's where she really gets a little radical. And, and she's challenging all sorts of boundaries of public and private. She's challenging monogamy, she's challenging marriage, she's challenging all of these things. And her vision is that, and I think this is something really interesting, it kind of uh, reflects on what you just said, that rather than starting the revolution from the state and working down into the domestic sphere, which is what people like Lenin and Trotsky were thinking about, Kolontai was actually proposing that we revolutionize our personal lives and the, domest and the domestic sphere first. And that it will percolate up into society and that society will become more egalitarian and more just and sustainable if we are more egalitarian and just in our personal lives. That idea seems to me kind of uniquely feminist. I agree. 
And it makes me think of Knock Down the House, the movie about, the documentary about Alexandria and three other candidates running for office. And so many people later responded by saying, oh, they were allowed to cry in that film, which seems such an obvious thing to say. But for people to be so surprised about women crying and still running for office, I think that tells us a lot about even even though Alexandria won some of not everyone else in the documentary won, but Ilan Omar won, a lot of women won. Mm-hmm. But if we're so surprised that they cried in the process, clearly that's really just the very first nudging of things and not a profound transformation of anything. So can you talk a little bit about how you imagine your dissertation and how you imagine using uh, some of these theories to think about domesticity? So... I'm only finishing my first year, so it's not like I have a sense of what my chapters are going to be or anything like that. But I'm interested in contemporary American novels and life writing. Mm -hmm. So I imagine using Colin Tai and theories that come sort of in her legacy to think about specifically female characters and immigrants and to understand their lives not in sort of a harsh narrative of how they resist the power structures, but how do they live their lives? Mm-hmm. So by using all the details that Colin Tai offers, looking at how their relationships are, looking where love is for them, not just in marriage, or something I've been interested in really recently, where the connection can be, for example, in a lot of Indian immigrant narratives, there's like a trend in very recent novels over the past few years of having young women choose arranged marriage. Oh, interesting. Isn't that so interesting? But not as something that's per se oppressive. Like I'm thinking of erotic stories for Punjabi widows, which was really good, or The Matchmaker's List, which was quite bad. (laughs) But in both novels, the female characters think about it exactly what she says. It's so hard to manage marriage and family and then life in relation to the people around them. It's so difficult and then if you're in an immigrant community, the expectations are even higher. And so they search for love and arranged marriage as a way of bringing some of the contradictions together. And for some of them it works, for some it doesn't. But it's a similar way of thinking of marriage as something that has such a huge influence in everyone's life and that you can't really choose just not to worry about marriage because right. it's it's just <laughs> out there. And so the choice of going sort of the other route and saying, okay, if it's out there, then let me just see how I can make it work for me rather than how I can squeeze into it. It seems really quite a crucial move. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about arranged marriages, of course, is that like the whole idea of love and passion and romance is not necessary. That's it's right. it, it's much more, <laughs> you know, it treats marriage as what it is, which is sort of an economic institution that sort of supports people within certain communities. And I think that, you know, when we talk about marriage, you know, just thinking about last week and talking to my daughter about like the, the you know, all of the rom-coms that we watch that sort of tell us that we're going to find our true love and it's all going to be wonderful. And, you know, and that just doesn't happen in high school. And so, but even I think, you know, it is interesting that the having a choice, if I mean, given that marriage is such an economic institution, that actually freights it with so much more baggage than like going the arranged marriage. I know I lived in Japan for three years, many years ago. And they still have this tradition of omiyai, which is arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised at how many, especially professional women, 
who had jobs decided that it was easier and that, that the matchmaker would probably do a better job of finding an appropriate partner than if they went out and dated. So it is really fascinating, you know, the way that we, marriage has always been this institution that most of us, for one reason or another, find ourselves in at some point in our lives. And and yet we we really take a lot of those things for granted. I mean, it's it doesn't make it easy. And I think reading Kolontai especially helps us see the the way that marriage as an institution actually has changed over time. Thinking back to the interview you did with your daughter, the first one, mm -hmm. when she talked about like Tinder and those kinds of things, that's, I think, a point well worth pondering some more because having a computer, Tinder is very much based on distance, I understand, but something like, okay, Cupid and under matchmaking services, that's like really a sliding scale from arranged marriage to just being set up randomly on dates, right? It all admits that it's just not an easy romantic narrative at all. Yeah. And that it doesn't have to be. Have to be. Like, I think she said that too, that it's just as possible to have a meet cute off of a Tinder match as it is <laughs> of like being in a bookstore and grasping for the same novel. Exactly. And so going forward, as you think about the essay, what are the, the parts of the essay that really spoke to you, that really kind of made made you stop and think as you were, especially as you were studying for your oral examinations? So I really like the pair of terms she uses, the wingless eras and the winged eras. I think even though she's a politician, right, not yeah. a, not mainly known as a like literary writer, that's a beautiful set of terms. And it articulates something quite profound because it says, by saying make wife of winged eras, it says it's not the state or marriage that she's most concerned about. She's really concerned about how people live and how they find happiness. It's She was the only, like, politician on my theory list and yet she was pretty much also the only one to talk about love in like a long theory list of queer and feminist studies where sexuality even marriage a lot of things surrounding love were very prominent and yet Kalantai was the only one to That's so interesting I might be forgetting maybe one but she theorized love right like she really theorizes what love is what eros is what the difference is. she even allows for difficult historical periods to make it necessary to have wing less eros for something exactly exactly <laughs> like then, when the world is being mean to you it's okay to have meaningless sex right exactly she, <laughs> which is pretty radical in 1923 how so radical but also because it's it's a letter right the format yes so i love that that it really feels like She's so empathetic and maybe slightly older already. Oh, yeah. And imagining what it would be like to be in her own 20s, maybe, or someone else who's in their 20s now. And it's almost like she's saying, I know this is confusing, but let me help you understand how your own happiness and the collective's happiness will be fine if you just allow for some radical change to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so 1923, she's probably 50, 51 years old, right. right? So she's definitely sort of looking down on the next generation. And to be fair, in the you know early 20s especially, a lot of young people were experimenting with different ways. But I do think, yeah, the way she ends the letter is really nice. Like, it is going to be okay. It'll take some time. There'll be upheaval. People will um, try to say that we're doing the wrong thing and they will criticize you. But in the end, it will. we'll all build this better world together. It is a very optimistic 
sort yeah. of piece of writing. It ends by saying, a mutual sensitivity will be learned. Men and women will strive to express their love not only in kisses and embraces, but in joint creativity and activity. That's utopian. Totally. It's yeah. not just optimistic. That's a utopian sense of what life could be. And it's. I think that, you know, again, one of the great things about reading Kolontai is, especially now, is to sort of get back to the utopian, to to understand that these early social movements and social revolutions were driven by economic concerns and feelings of injustice and rage and anger against capitalism, but they were also fueled by dreams, by utopian dreams, particularly. And and the romance, I have a colleague, Maple Raza, who writes about anti-globalization protesters in successor states of the U of former Yugoslavia. And he, he ends his book, it's called Bastards of Utopia is the name of the book. It's a wonderful book. And he ends his book by saying, people who study sort of left social movements do themselves a really huge disservice if they ignore the romance of dreaming about a future that is yet to come. If you only stay in the sort of material analysis of the present, you lose what motivated so many people to risk their lives to, to try to create a better world. And I think that that's something that Kolontai, you know, she's, she's viciously attacked for writing this article. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And, but I, but I think that, you know, if you, especially if you read around, you know, the things that she was writing around this time, you can tell that she was infused with the possibility of building a different world. And it didn't happen the way she wanted it to, obviously. But I think that attending to ordinary life and attending to love, you know, how could we be theorizing about social change and theorizing about the economy and theorizing about sexuality and theorizing about marriage and not be theorizing about love? It is really, really interesting because, like, listen to the pop songs on the radio. Watch any, you know, romantic comedy. What is it all about? It's all about love or not love or being in love and having lost love or wanting to be in love <laughs> with somebody who doesn't love you. I mean, it's all about love. Everybody's obsessed with it. So we should be talking about it more. And she even thinks of it as a driving force for a better society, too, which is a move some of pop culture doesn't do, where the like happy love narratives are basically just a cordoning off into a private little cell. But for her, that's not what happens. It's not a way, like the thrift of things isn't into isolation. So I think I love that she theorizes love, but specifically that she goes so far beyond just romantic couples and stuff like that. Yes. Because like friendship is a big deal, both to her, but also in ordinary life. Yeah. Most people would be struggling more without friendship than without love. Exactly. And the love of your, your family, your parents, your children. But I think, yeah, Kolontai actually believes that we can, I mean, we can sort of love our way into a better society. And right? she does that with her letter because it's also written really lovingly. It's not like a hard lesson that she tries to teach. It's a very warm, effective reading experience. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad that we had a chance to talk. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that was Angelina Eimansberger, a PhD student here at the University of Pennsylvania in comparative literature. And I just wanted to sort of emphasize one thing that Angelina said in our interview, which is that, you know, these rearrangements of love and romance, thinking about sexuality and affection outside of the box, in Kolontai's view, was really a way to 
change the world. It had a larger political purpose. And I've gotten a couple emails from people who, you know, are really curious and thinking about polyamory in the contemporary moment in the United States and, and perhaps elsewhere. But I think that the difference between kind of contemporary discussions of, of polyamory and open relationships are that they're not quite politicized in the way that Alexandra Kolontai thought that these kinds of relationships would be because these are relationships and if you listen to the essays you understand that Kolontai believed that these relationships this new idea of love would help build a new more loving society that basically if people felt love and support in their personal lives and if they had this wider network of people with whom they had affective relations then society would become more sympathetic more uh, communal more cooperative and generally more happy. And so this idea that the personal is political, it's also that the political is personal. And I think that, you know, when we talk about love and romance in terms of Kolontai, we have to remember that for Kolontai, the ultimate goal was building a more just society, a more equitable egalitarian society. And she thought that we could model that egalitarian society in our personal lives. Thanks for listening and keep up the good fight.